affects only um, girls, and it's called Rett syndrome. I'm not an expert on it, R-E-T-T, but anyway, um, it's interesting because the baby girl um, develops normally, you know, hits all the normal markers for for whatever, you know, weight and, and linear growth and, and et cetera, up till they're a year old. Then they start to regress, and they develop... Um, almost like an incredibly severe uh, autism disorder, mm. like autism, mm-hmm. and um, a f- behavioral and mental decline. So it's an unbelievably cruel um, disorder or disease, you know. And they built a mouse model on it so they could um, replicate it. And But anyway, they were able to identify that uh, one of the causes of it is like a uh, turning on of a gene, or turning off of genes, sets of genes. And um, they developed a drug that only works in mice, but um, mm-hmm. to able to, you know, knock that gene out. And um, this turns out it's an epigenetic effect, actually, um, being added to the gene, to the activity of the gene. Anyway, they're able to block that and then completely regress, I mean, cr- completely um, recover the mice to full what you would call normal physiological growth and mental, you know, psychological health. It's like unbelievable. <clears throat> like to recover that very same patient who yeah. has the genetic disorder, it's in mice, but the, the, the hope is and the prayer is that we'll be able to apply this to, you know, it's proof of concept that we can, that we can reclaim mental health, <laughs> you know, in a lifetime on a, of a patient. Yeah, it's not even... Mm-hmm. The downstream genetic or offspring. It's rain. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's so that's Rett's kind syndrome. of one of the ideas of like of being able to tweak some of these levers with epigenetic um, knowledge and tools. You know, is this just recent? This yeah, story? it's pretty recent. There's, there's actually so much re- research going on in this area, Jack, that it, like it's impossible yeah. for a layman like me to keep up. Like it's a big mass scramble, hmm. and there's a lot of drug companies that are super interested in it. Well, when you say in it, we should maybe yeah, introduce yeah. what what are you talking about here? Well, we're talking today. We're going to talk about epigenetics, um, which is like. Most people will have heard of it, but if they're like us, they won't know anything about it. <laughs> so we're going to try and learn together as we go. Learning from... Very honest. I like it. Yeah. yeah. I certainly am an expert on it, so... Yeah. Yeah, it's good. But it's... Uh, like, it's... For us, I think it's super interesting because it's one of these emerging fields. It's like, you know, like, what don't we know? Well, it turns out there's a whole ton of shit we don't know about um, genetics and... Um, body platforms and development, you know, for a physical and mental development. Like it's, we thought we had it nailed down, you know, with Darwin and then Mendel, Mendelian, you know, genetics and the DNA from Crick and Watson and, you know, that DNA mm-hmm. is, the, is the code, the, the language of, you know, the platform for, for genes that are built out of DNA and then genes are what give us you know our our behavior and and physique, our phenotype, and mm-hmm. they are who we are. We're made of genes, and we thought, well, put a lid on that and put a bow on it. Especially after we did the genome, you know, human mm-hmm. genomic project yeah. that was under Bill Clinton, and it looked like the whole thing was sort of you know a couple of loose ends, and that was it. <laughs> but turns out that you know this this little area of epigenetics is like cr- exploded out of this box. And, what um, is what is epigenetics? Like, what is the word well, even? Epi is coming from Latin, I think, or Greek, meaning above, um, higher than or above. And so what it means is it's above the genome or above the genes. And so a good way to think about it is maybe, there's maybe many metaphors, but like there's, we have 20,000 genes or 23,000 genes in the human you know, genome. We're actually not much. It's like about the same as a banana, <laughs> you know, which has great explanatory power for like a huge percentage of the population <laughs> in and of itself. Nice. Where do you fall in that? Are you similar to a banana? No comment. No comment. <laughs> like, I'm more like a, more like a ribeye. <laughs> Good. Higher nice. order. 
So that, you know, it's, we don't have very many genes at all. We're like a real simple organism. And so our genes, that's like one of the head scratchers. It's like, shit, we did the human genome product, the HEP, and we found out we only got like 20,000 genes or so. There's hardly any. It's like, how does that explain this amazing creature that we are? You know, it's like it, it's really fell short. And, hmm. and anyway, so the, the, hidden, the hidden player which turns out it's like a conductor with a thousand arms, you know, or a mu musician playing a, a thousand string guitar is epigenetic, this area of action on top of the genes, hmm. um, switching them on and off, upregulating, downregulating, and then and toggling them. So we were just at the Counting Crows concert at Red Rocks <laughs> on the nice. weekend. Yeah, and I was thinking there on the way back, knowing we would do this podcast, it's like, you know the sound guy, the sound tech guys with the with the soundboard there. You know it's got all those toggles on it, like hundred levers that you can move up and down, and that's really more like what the epigen, epi, they call it an epigenome or the epigenetic effects are more like this ability to toggle up and down all this nuance, very very subtle. It's unbelievable, but amplifying and deamplifying genetic expression. Mm -hmm. instead that's of really instead of just being us. every yeah. channel on full right. blast or every channel off yep yeah. or not manip yeah and so it's even like your genes don't change but you know you can have that's how twins can end up on different courses or different identical twins they always mm. do yeah because yeah. there's a unexplained environmental impact and it's well it's epigenetics that can end up influencing that but it's so, phenotype expression so things you can actually observe but you're genes aren't actually changed like your dna is the same yeah. but it so actually always in this uh, i'm learning this at the same time but uh -huh. using your soundboard example yeah is it fair to say that like the soundboard each channel so for the lead singer the guitar the bass everyone has their own individual channel is that almost like the genes and then the levels and the effects and the Bam. the mixing that's applied to each one of those is on a you know on a scale it could be completely off or completely on or somewhere in between yeah. That's what kind of what you're saying is there's all these genes, there's all these channels, and then on top of them is all these different effects that could be applied. So it's really almost infinite yeah. variation. Mm -hmm. More more than a banana. Jar. Yeah. Turns out horseplay was in the business of epigenetics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is a good time. <laughs> you didn't to, even know it. Yeah, this is just By a plug for my college band. <laughs> and Counting Crows was magnificent, by the way. <laughs> Did they play any? Mr. Jones? Yeah, in a long December. It was unreal. I saw them in concert and they didn't play Mr. Jones, which was like just criminal. I don't yeah. know how they could uh, really? get away with that. So they learned their lesson. But. Yeah, the smell of hospitals in winter. Like, <laughs> man, that's such a good lyric. Yeah, that'll they got fire lots you of up. Them. That that'll, should go on a shirt. That'll brighten your day. I <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> so, that's it. But um, okay. so it's this it's amazing a good field, Jack. That um, that's spilling over to animal agriculture. And of course, agronomy, plant, you know, mm -hmm. growing crops. And it turns out that growing crops are way more um, pliable plastic uh, for epigenetic manipulation. Um, but mammals, <clears throat> excuse me, are much more difficult. And we're, we'll talk about that too as to why. But um, the potential in agriculture is to, is to like, the, all the emphasis so far has been on, like, really the predominant emphasis has been on, like, hardcore just genetic traits selecting for them and then using you know the best sires as example with beef cattle and dairy cattle and then we use artificial insemination collect the semen from the best bulls you know and then we inseminate all the all the all the best females um, and then we and so we can accelerate this um, genetic inheritance of qualities that we want okay mm -hmm. and then, so that's been selecting just for straight up good old genetics and um, and has worked and served us very well. We do that mm -hmm. with poultry too in turkeys with you know artificial insemination as well, and and of course in pigs and everything. I mean that's so that's been our emphasis. But now this new world of like tweaking things through environment and through nutrition. So you think about it, environment being a broad term, and environment could be everything from light and sound and nutrition and um, like a physical stress and mental stress and, um, you know, individual nutrients too, water, mm. protein, carbohydrates. Now, if you, 
before we would just think about, oh, you're just maximizing or minimizing um, the, the genes that were, you know, are present in that animal that they inherited, you know, from their parents. And, um, but now we're learning that, that um, a, lot of the, a lot of effects could be, if we, as we learn more, we could tweak, the, turn the dials or move up those, you know, on the soundboard and get, <clears throat> help that animal in real time adjust, hmm. you know, or prepare for known challenges ahead. Um, like there's some really cool work in, in chickens where, you know, every chick's, they spend like 30% of their life as inside the egg developing. Imagine that 30%. <laughs> like for us, how long do we spend in gestation? It's like nine months or something. <laughs> uh-huh. Last I checked. Well, yeah. imagine if it was our life, 30%. I mean, we'd put like 28 to 30 years in the womb. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. by comparison to a broiler chick. Wow. So there's a 30% of their, no, it's actually more like 38% because they they grow so damn fast now. So huh. like, How many days until? It's, it's like 40. 21 days. In that. In the incubation. Yeah. You know, before they hatch. Yeah. From insemination to hatch. But then and market ready in. Market ready in 34 or 42 days. That's how fast. Yeah, that's how fast boilers wow. grow now. Actually, watch them grow. Yeah, you, but yeah, smoke a couple of cigarettes and watch them grow right in front of you. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize it was that fast. Matter of yeah. fact, what are you doing the next month? We should go do that. Watch one grow. <laughs> smoke a pack of cigarettes and watch chickens grow. Sit aside three weeks. <laughs> that's yeah. no. Anyway, so what they can do, what they're learning is, you know, in that whole time when they're in an incubator and the. The, embry- the embryonic chick is developing and they've they've learned that if they can you can affect that chick's development by um, external stimuli using heat so you heat shock them for like several hours um, on on a certain day like day 17 and 18 you give them like mm-hmm. three hours of extra heat and then you can also give them different light color <laughs> green wavelength, red wavelength, you know, red shift. They talk. I'm not an expert on light wavelengths, but you're not okay. But they have an effect, mm-hmm. and out come these these. You can you can pre-imprint these the progeny, the chicks, so that when they're growing, they'll be more tolerant of heat stress. Wow. Yep. And they'll be and they'll mm-hmm. be more, um, you know, grow faster, more disease resistant, more. You know, resilient. It's like unbelievable. Yeah. Mm. And so you think about that. They were impregnated. I mean, not impregnated. They were fertilized. Mm-hmm. The ovum and the sperm from the rooster and the hen, and and each delivered their package, their chromosome package mm-hmm. of of genetic material, contributed equally from the rooster and the hen. And so that was set. You know, to your point, Tommy, the genet- the DNA is set, and every mm-hmm. cell has that same set of DNA, which they make genes from. Mm-hmm. And so none of that changed. Hmm. Um, and, but but, still but what to... changed was being able to toggle the expression of the genes, you know, in the incubator. Yeah. Well, and uh, maybe so. to comment on, like, what is it actually that's being toggled might be well, helpful to go into that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I've... But, couple questions for my own understanding because I think maybe listeners also might be in the same Mm -hmm. similar spot as me but going to reveal how little I actually know about genes and genetics but going back to the human genome project you said there is we'll use 20,000 for a round number Um, 20,000 genes is that do all of us have the same 20,000 genes (laughs) I actually don't know (laughs) Because the question I'm getting here, this is this is why we need to bring we need to bring Carrie into this. Tommy's now wife is a is a true wealth of knowledge in uh, epigenetics, and she'd be able to tell us a lot more in detail. But the question I'm getting at is, if we all have the same genes, but we're now just realizing it's different, you know, different applied amounts of whatever. Here, I don't know the, the vernacular, but if it's not just on and off, what explains the variation mm-hmm. between us? So because if we all have the same genes and they're so, all previously we thought they're either all on or all off then then so how in general different? i think that's correct but it's the number of different combinations that you can have within the genes of which ones are actually expressing some sort of outward phenotype versus not um 
yeah, I, I think there's a huge amount of DNA coding that isn't there for any actual Per, I mean, you know, it serves a purpose, but it's not expressing, there's no gene expression coming from, I think, a large percent of the DNA. Okay. It's the certain stretches along the way that end up actually leading to RNA and then protein synthesis and then gene expression and things like that. But that's a, it's a good question on actual genes. Yeah, do we all have the same toolkit to start with, all 20,000? Right. Okay. Well, we'll find well, the we answer. Have, we do. We all have the same <clears throat> DNA, which is like the the blueprint, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's why you can do DNA to, you know, to check all the way from a woolly mammoth to an ant, you know, they can mm-hmm. figure out what animal it was by their DNA, but mm-hmm. the genes are different. Obviously, Tommy inherited some to be, you know, very tall, mm-hmm. plus nutrition, and some have brown hair and blonde hair and, you know, such and so forth. So the package is slightly different, but the epigenetic aspect is that right from pre from pre-birth, right from conception, these toggling is starting to happen. And so that's why I think you mentioned twins, identical twins, Jack, or Tommy did. But identical twins have exactly the same genetic start point. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is absolutely identical unless you're non-identical, right? But uh, identical twins do. But as they, as, as you know, as they, even in the, even in the gestation, but certainly in the, after they're born, you know, they just keep diverging in terms of who they are and how they behave and think and mm-hmm. and even their bodies start to diverge because of epigenetic effect. So the genes all stay the same. The DNA is exactly the same, but the expression of them just keeps getting amplified. Here's know, a become more and more different. Right. Here's an answer just to mm-hmm. for that I've pulled up um where is it from? National Institute of General Medicine Sciences. Uh, human genome is mostly the same in all people, but there are variations across the genome. The genetic variation accounts for about about 0.001% of each person's DNA and contributes to the differences in appearance and health. People who are closely related have more similar DNA. So mm-hmm. basically the same, but that 1.001 is what makes us all unique. Is that what I'm reading? That sounds right. I mean, that seems <laughs> yeah. crazy. But yeah, well, no, I, I read that as well. That's that's right. Okay. Yeah, and there's you know in our DNA that actually codes for proteins because that's basically you know you make genes come out of your A, you know A C G T comes from DNA, and then you know all the different configurations of those four chemicals that make up our A C G T. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can be ex- can can be used to create proteins and body platform. You know, instructions that build us. Like it's just unbelievable. But like something like ninety five percent of our DNA, they used to call it junk DNA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like black. It's like dark energy in the universe. Hmm. You know, five percent of it of the universe we can we can measure as being mass. You know, containing mass, and ninety five percent of it's dark energy. We have no no idea what the hell's out there. You know, yeah. but it interacts with us. Um, and the same with DNA ninety. You could look it up, but it's a huge percent. That's um, they have no idea, or had no idea what it was doing, but now it turns out that they they think that there's a whole like mosaic of of interplay with this um, non-coding DNA that 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 has epigenetic roles. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a fascinating field. So we've come a long way from from that little Frenchman called Jean Baptiste Lamarck. You know, <laughs> this is where it all started. This theory of was he actually little? Yeah, I suspect he was tiny. <laughs> Find out. <laughs> yep, pull that up. Jack. He was in the late 1700s. Yeah, lived to be, be like eight into the 1840s, I think. But this guy, he pre, he was a precursor to Darwin with like a the first sort of um, theory of uh, evolution. And Lamarck, it's called Lamarckian, you know. Uh, evolution is how they refer to it today. Six foot zero. Oh, no, that's... Yeah, I think that's Jean like Baptiste. Oh, Baptiste. This is a French <laughs> athlete with an amputated tibula. That's not who we're talking <laughs> about. Him. He's a descendant. <laughs> Would his offspring have? <laughs> yeah. Would they be missing a tibula? He cut his leg off wood cutting in, in, the, in the Pyrenees. 
and now his great 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 grandchild's got a leg missing. <laughs> this is what you call acquired inheritance. And this is what he believed. You know, he believed that that this idea of what you did in your life now would affect your progeny. Mm-hmm. So his famous idea was with a blacksmith, you know, pounding on making horseshoes, pounding with a twenty-pound hammer in a in a smith shop all day. Then he would have big muscles, and then therefore his kids would have big muscles, and their kids would. And so the further they went along, the more muscular they would get and stronger. And uh, so his idea was like by striving, you could you could create evolution and every species was striving to be bigger and better so insects were striving to be rabbits and rabbits were striving to be you know lions and lions were striving it was an upward mm-hmm. struggle mm-hmm. but you could his theory was that you could actually achieve things by your struggle and another example of his was giraffes you might have heard about that it's like mm. giraffes reaching for better leaves tastier leaves at the at the top of the tree so they stretch their necks and that's what gave giraffes long necks you know and, and this so, would have been presented as in contrast to darwinian yeah well darwin theory. came along very quickly after that and he proposed the, his theory based on you know survival of the fittest the know. tall neck giraffes that live because they can reach the top yeah not right because they right, tried to reach right. the top. they were mm-hmm. actually mutants yeah the ones that had long necks were mute, were you know random variation called mute, mute, beneficial mutations, right? And they were able to survive better because they could reach the high leaves and the fruit, and their so therefore their progeny survived with long with the mutant gene, mm-hmm. and then soon the after a period of time the mutation becomes standard because mm-hmm. everything else died off, right? And all the short necks <laughs> they all died. <laughs> So yeah, you're better to have a long neck. It's even like parasites, though. We talked about that yeah. um, from that standpoint. It's the mute. They they go dormant for a while in the in the host or in maybe in a different host, but then it's the a certain mutant is one that's able to survive the new tricks of the immune system of the host, mm. and then now that becomes a predominant one. I guess that's the same sort of theory. Yeah, is mm-hmm. the same kind of example of that. The mutant one that ends up being luckily beneficial. Yeah, that's the whole catches on Darwinian and then that becomes dominant like, and then the immune system responds to that as the mm-hmm. you know, it's always well, chasing the what do you call it, the, the red, red queen. Yeah, the red queen. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting I guess one of the questions that I had um, as we were talking about this before we started recording was these two kind of competing, well maybe I shouldn't even say competing, but different schools of thought of of like Darwin survival of the fittest mutant genes versus the striving upwards giraffes got long necks because they tried to reach high instead of giraffes have long necks because the long necked ones survived mm-hmm. are they how are they playing out in like in today's scientific community are they both accepted as valuable theories and and schools of thought or is it still like predominantly ones on the fringe and I think I don't know, I'll take a stab at it, I guess, yeah. but it seems like epigenetics tries to grab both because that's the like the marriage of nature and nurture okay. um, kind of coming together and both having their role in determining. Oh, so it's not saying it's not it's not only one of the it's it's saying it's nature also new mm-hmm. nurture and environment. Yeah, it's environments affect so nature would be your genes and yep. then nurture would be the environment, I guess, and so it's the nurture effect on nature that can ultimately affect next round of nature so next round of genetic you know inheritance and so that would be i guess how i think about it i don't know if that's exactly correct or not but that's the twins again is a good example of that so they're you know born with your given set of genes but then x amount of different things happen in your life and you end up wildly different um, paths but also yeah how you can even physically look Mm -hmm. and that there's a lot of different things that play into that as well. But I, I think it is kind of the, the joining or the yeah, the coming together of nature and nurture is what epigenetics kind of tries to um, dial in on a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've heard it is said as the, the epigenetics is the nurture above the nature. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's real. You can see it like in the Nepalese, you know, the Sherpas that, that carry all the wealthy Western billionaires to the top of Mount Everest, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've they've developed, you know, through 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 environmental, through the, you know, 
um, effect of having low oxygen. You know, they just have a lot more red blood cells right. mm. in their body. So, but that that isn't like a random mutation that they mutated. You know, bodies to get yeah. more red blood cells. It's building on what the body is already capable of, our genetic potential, and the epigenetic effect is to amplify that or, you know, mm. or to take away from it, whatever, mm-hmm. up or down. So that's why they, you know, they upregulate for for red blood cells because they're oxygen-starved, you know, is mm-hmm. a good example. And is that from birth or is that on, like across the population or is it just the Sherpas that no, are I, actually... It's just the ones that are in that environment, you so know. So how is, is that different than like getting big muscles because you work out like mm-hmm. like if they have red, more red blood cells because they're in that environment or you're a you can hold your breath a lot longer because you dive deep in the sea versus yeah. an entire population whether or not i've climbed the mountain i have more red blood cells because i from that lineage mm-hmm. yeah i don't know if there's a question in there but I'm, that's what oh, i'm that's, thinking about it that's the environment you know whether it's exercise heavy lifting repetitive lifting or if it's that you know diving you know, to great depths, you know, your the environment's inducing, you know, stress on your body platform. And and then your you know, there's your body f- responds epigenetically to these things. Like there will be genes that are are expressed to, to help cope with the stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But then I guess maybe the question a- is would that let's say uh is it Tenzing Norgay brought yeah. up Ed Hillary to the top of Mount Everest. Yeah. Say he had the higher red blood cell count because he was yeah. doing this. It, it, this didn't actually happen, but let's say he had a, a child. This is the this theory of epigenetics. Would that child, whether or not he went on to climb mountains or whether he worked mm-hmm. in Fargo, North Dakota at an office job, is the idea that he might have higher red blood cell count because of the activities yeah. of his father that's the idea okay um and so i don't know if that experiment's been done sure if it if that true indeed was true and it carried on to his progeny then that would be like a they call that a um uh you know there's and if it carried on to his grandchild even more which would be like Mm -hmm. incredible proof of Mm -hmm. what they call transgenetic transgenerational effects right and um so they're very rare to have something that big happen like that jack um in human populations or in mammals but they do but there are instances um that 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 have validated that same sort of uh idea where yeah that might be extreme example that's an extreme example i don't just quickly getting out of my depth a little bit but Mm -hmm. talking to carrie who does know stuff about this if you are able to, so part of the epigenetics is different ways of manipulating the, adding the, you know, the toggle switch onto the DNA. So one of them is methylating, um, what is methylating that? DNA. So it's adding a methyl group to it. And so let's say you have your DNA there with the adenine and guanine, cytosine and taurine. And so the one of those four is the cytosine. That's the one that can be methylated. So a methyl group can attach to that. And that's back to dad talking about it's more like a soundboard but let's take it back to how the simplistic way of thinking about it the methyl groups on there that now down regulates that gene expression there okay um and carrie was explaining to me that there's a certain percentage of dna that's imprinted so it's um if you manage to tack on so if it let's use the everest example if red blood cells happen to be as simple as one certain piece of DNA needed to be methylated to shut off, you know, the down-regulating red blood cell expression, something like that, now you've got more red blood cells. And if that happened to be on the imprinted section of the code, genetic code, then that part could be passed on. Um, and now that's part of that genetic code with hmm. that, I guess, um, epigenetic effect on it. Okay, That's my understanding is that some... And so that was... Again, I said getting out of my depth pretty quickly no, on that, but that was uh, at least having a conversation with trying to understand that mm-hmm. part is, is it inherited? And because we know that methyl groups are one of a couple different ways that epigenetics can kind of have its effect on DNA and ex- gene expression. So, so I, my question was, is the actual methyl group inherited itself? So once it's mm-hmm. on there, and I think my understanding is that if it's in the Im- imprinted part, which is not all of the code, but some of it, then that would that would make it through because... Well, we were talking before this podcast, but it might be worth highlighting again when 
during embryonic development, there's certain waves where it's almost like the, the genes get cleansed, where they get all of the these methyl groups knocked off of the sides and it sets it back to basically a baseline. So a lot of the previously of environmental effects that would have happened to that code are now reset. And then there's another wave that happens that does it. But ultimately, it seems like it's trying to cleanse it. But it seems like there's a certain part of the code that doesn't get that. Yeah, and that can very be passed small. on. Yeah. Hmm. And it's a really small percent. So that might be why hmm. you're saying it is very few big things like that actually happen, but they can. Yeah. like Because it needs classic, to be. There's some classic studies in, in humans that were done. Um, one of them's at the end of the Second World War. It's called the Dutch Famine. People may have heard of this one, the Hunger Winter, 1944 to 45. But the Germans, obviously, at the end of the war and the Dutch were starving. They were down to like 800 calories per person per day instead of, you know, 25 or 3,000. Mm -hmm. So they were starving and the Dutch have, but they had great records kept. And so they've been, to do retrospective studies, there's been lots of them done now. Because that was in 1945, so that was already, let's say, you know, 50, it's already 75, years 70 years ago. And um, so they're able to now look at the kids that were born from these parents. And so they, great studies have been done of the Dutch famine where they look at the mothers who, who were pregnant during the famine. Mm -hmm. And they could, then they could look at the mothers that were, that were starving in the first trimester of pregnancy versus the second or the third trimester. <laughs> Or mothers that starved through the whole trimester, the children, you know, starved in the womb through the whole trimester. And then they looked at the health outcomes of these of their children and now of the children's children. Hmm. And they've found these epigenetic effects that are just crazy that did carry through Whoa. in terms of like um, obesity, you know, yeah. type 2 diabetes early mortality, cardiovascular disease. Schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. What is so. Like looking at the F1, like the offspring of the oh. of the starved, um, they started out really normal. It seemed like, you know, they their birth weights might have been a little bit low, right? And then, but they mm -hmm. caught up to their group and sure. it seemed to be middle of the pack, yada, yada. There's nothing that jumped out. And then, give them enough time and their average life expectancy was like 68 I think, really compared to the other cohorts who were not starved mm. during that same time period wow and there's a lot of different metabolic things going on there clearly mm. um but also the the schizophrenia what like everything else is metabolic syndrome yeah, and, that one? and that and then also just throw in schizophrenia do you, do you so know I what the, was it like well if you're mentioning it probably a significantly higher percentage develops schizophrenia yeah, in the yeah, general yeah. population for sure and i don't know what they wow. i didn't read enough on mm -hmm. actually what the schizophrenia piece is but i know there's actual hormone regulation and differences um between what a, the cohorts here and so we'll see when they when the when the when the uh embryo or the fetus is developing there there's pulses of like incredible you know it's it's sequential like you know that they're incredible like trillions of neurons and things are formed in, in a matter of hours, you know, in mm -hmm. certain periods. It's like so staggering. And so any of, you know, interruptions or they, that's the, that's the point, you know, and this, mm -hmm. um, you know, could be, can end up being significant later in life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like they even saw like second trimester, the children that were starved in their second trimester, they were held, you know, they were fully nourished in in the first early stages of pregnancy, but and then they had, you know, increased kidney and lung and respiratory diseases later in life, but <laughs> versus the ones in the first trimester. So it's a different time point yeah. when the lungs were developing, as example, and the kidneys, you know, were developing at a later yeah. rate than perhaps like, you know, other organs and the brain and nervous system. So yeah. that that makes so. sense in mm -hmm. like a conventional sense that the offspring of the uh, starving mother has these effects, but you were saying these continued downstream, like so the kids yeah. of so the grandchildren of the mom that was starving during World War, World War II, they mm -hmm. were having effects still, mm -hmm. even if they were yeah. fully nourished in the womb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of them they call these a persistent effect. So it it ends up being that these 
Normally they're right wiped clean, like Tommy said, but some sneak through. Sure. And then they become part of the, you know, the the genetic package that persists for, and it may phase out. Like they, they in my reading, it said usually three is the maximum, and then they and then they, you know, they just drift away or they reset. But hmm. you, it looks like you can get, you know, up to three generations of impl implications. So there's other sort of sort of while well, we're on this topic, but there's other work was done in Sweden over calyx. It's a famous data set of people that had uh, they were farming um, village people. Uh, they were in a very secluded area of Sweden back in the 1800s, but they kept really good records of the crops. And they had like five every three or four years. They were they 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 had a good year, but in between they were always starving and hungry. And but they and no one moved in and out of the community. You sort of born there and died there. So they had great records because the Swedes are very good at record keeping. And they and scientists today are doing lots of research on these people, hmm. their health outcomes, and following for you know for generations afterwards. And and they found. Like one of the cool findings I wrote down here was if the food was not readily available during the father's slow growth period. So this is a, a paternal effect coming from the dad and his sperm. Hmm. Nothing to do with like nutrition during gestation. <laughs> it's just from the sperm. And um, if if he if he didn't if he starved when he was in his slow growth period, like pre puberty. Then the child's his child's cardiovascular disease mortality was low, diabetes mortality increased if the paternal grandfather was exposed to a surfeit of food, meaning a surplus of food during his growth period. So it's like <laughs> granddad's <laughs> sperm is affecting you know yeah. the grandson. Wow! And giving him. Incredible, isn't that something? Only and only for because if he did, ate, if he was well fed for the three years yeah. of his life. Wow! So how do people find these <laughs> correlations? Well, yeah. it's data. You know, What's you this? Data. Kind of to the same effect, but it's it just recently has been highlighted to me. I know you and Carrie have talked about this too, but mm -hmm. the effect from the so paternal—that's a whole different deal. But the maternal side is when conception happens. If you're if something happens epigenetic-wise during that moment, so you now have the mom, and then there's conception, so you have the offspring. But offspring, right at moment of conception, their germline for their reproduction is set now too. And so now you've affected not just the offspring, but the, the grand mm -hmm. offspring all at one moment, three, two generations prior. And oh. so if you have an intentional way of affecting... The moment of conception or somewhere around that, which I know that's fetal programming. That is a part of what a lot of research goes towards. But if that uh, that time frame, you can have really long-term effects just from mm. doing something intentionally during that time Whoa. that might set up, you know, not Multiple even just offspring, but that yeah. offspring's offspring. Yeah. The offspring's the you know, yeah, wow. size of a dot and it's already because yeah, all the it's offspring is already determined what you know to some extent 50 that, years of their fixed amount lineage. set yeah. right then yeah and so yeah. then that comes to that is really what is incredible. the nature versus nurture part is are you just predetermined from two generations prior without even a chance or is mm. you know is nature affecting that too on top of it once you do come out and yeah. it's both wow. but yeah no there's it's, it's a, the amazing elaborate there's so much plasticity you know they're finding out but yeah that's just the incredible thing that all many of these things are reversible too yeah so you know but you were talking about with the poultry so mm -hmm. heat stressing intentionally yeah. for benefit yeah but then on the like everything can have pros and cons but my understanding was on um you can have heat tolerance they can be more thermo regulated but also like a dairy cow if mm -hmm. they were they did this really big, they've done a couple of these studies now, but they just take mass population data from cows that are um, bred in summer versus winter and then follow the, you know, that's in general heat stress versus cold time. Um, and the the results across two different studies that have kind of used this approach were that the, the offspring, you know, conceived during summertime or heat stress are less productive during um, as far as longevity in the herd and milk production mm -hmm. during their life just based off when the 
mom was um, bred. Mm-hmm. And so that would be a negative. But there adult, so that's why I get a little bit confused on epigenetics as far as applied implications for useful tools in you know day-to-day agriculture because everything has positive and negatives right so those cattle also do have a higher thermo stability or ability they're they're able to dissipate heat better they have different coat maybe or they have different um, heat shock proteins they have different ways of handling the heat load and so that's a positive thing but it doesn't show up in productive performance because they're Mm. predisposed to having lower peak yields and things like that anyways and so it's I don't know. It was just in, so I don't know on the poultry side. Is that is that an actual practice that's being done? Is to get them, you know, more heat tolerant so they can survive better and it doesn't affect their growth. In the in I think in the climates that have this real, you know, these extreme um, temperatures, like maybe Thailand is a good example, or you know where they where they know that it's going to be hot, mm-hmm. yeah. like guaranteed. Yeah. Then these are. And certainly lighting in the incubators and it's very elaborate the, the, mm-hmm. what they're doing there and even rotating the eggs, you know, certain angles and motion and like it's <laughs> really lots of manipulations that are that they do with eggs that you would never know about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like very subtle changes can make a big difference. Like is that this just shows my mm-hmm. novice in this area again, but like with cattle are people intentionally exposing them to heat for that reason in well, if you're i know of but certainly heat abatement like you mentioned right. dairy cows this work been done really good you know like if you cool the mothers while they're pregnant while they're dry in the dry period mm-hmm. if you have a hot climate and you cool them versus the control cows that aren't cooled those heifers when they finally milk two years later they come into the milking herd they produce like six liters a day more milk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's fifteen pounds a day more milk mm-hmm. than their than their cousins, you know, that were in the same facility, same nutrition, everything, but weren't cooled. cooled. Their mothers weren't cooled. Yeah. So wow. these effects are big. But they're difficult to study. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. but they're but they can be big. Something just popped into my head that's a little bit off topic, but it's a question i don't know if you've thought about it dead or not Mm. but i know you like to think about crispr a lot yeah and we're talking genetics are they so crispr is a different approach than yeah thinking fetal programming or um, epigenetics or things like that but did they would they work together for like i I don't even really know what i'm asking besides Mm. that which because i can see clear implications of of crispr towards you know um Mm. knocking out negative parts of the dna to set them up better to not experience whatever it was that they were otherwise predisposed to have. Mm-hmm. Is that, do you see, I guess, room for both or one over the other as far no, as I think implication both, wise? Both for sure. You know, CRISPR gene editing or talons or other processes they're developing. They'll definitely, you know, it's just going to be more and more of, of that and very useful. But the epigenetic also is very useful because it can be like, more immediate you yeah know? yeah you can change the the environment or the nutrition this is the big opportunity as you're going like mm-hmm. as things are going mm-hmm. and um and 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 upregulate or you know bring forth the the gene the genetic expression that you want uh, on the on the go you know and this is what they're sort of excited about so that like, they'll work with all of this will come into play yeah you know, hand in hand or in a cord integrated. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, you know, that's probably, that's kind of what I was thinking when you said at the beginning where it yeah. can actually happen in the existing animal or person or mouse. You can change the course based off of intentional mm-hmm. use of epigenetic drug or something like that if it was. So yeah. I was wondering if there would be a way to like, if that is ultimately the direction it's going where you can place a methyl group on this stretch of DNA with the exact precision that, you know, just for yeah. cutting it out would have had to. Yeah. Mm. Well, there is a, that in the human side. That's what they're very interested in that, like getting uh, um, drugs that will demethylate, mm-hmm. you know, as examples, um, or wipe clean or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So that that bioactive compounds, you know, they don't have to be drugs, but chemicals that can do that. Yeah. Very interesting. Hmm. You know. I get the feeling these are both 
well, CRISPR has been around, at least yeah. conversation has been around for a while, but this, what we're talking about tonight, is it really, I mean, besides Carrie, I've never heard of anybody, I've never heard of this field of study. Um, is it really like the front edge of it right now? Like just proof of concept or has it been around a long time and people have been studying this and it's getting closer to being implemented like in the market? Do you have an yeah, idea? Like, I think it's it's almost like it's probably longer than I would say. Sure. Like, I, I think it's been looked at for some time, and there's been dedicated work in there. But there's more and more people interested in it today than last year, and then more last year than five years before, for sure. It'll be interesting. What um, I'm sure that just anything with huge data sets, um, what like AI will not insemination, artificial insemination, but AI, artificial intelligence, what that might do in like mm. in an example of like this type of field where there's mm-hmm. so many I guess variables and so many data points to be able to process it with like anything just, with genome yeah, and genetics I is, imagine it's going to be expedited if it, I'm sure I'm not the first to think of this but <laughs> what if but, it were <laughs> yeah it was, oh, we've used AI for many other data sets but <laughs> but I yeah, yeah it'd be interesting what what that could bring in a you know, could really push the clock forward in theory. Yeah, because there's the the you're right, Jack. Then and the genetic potential is like so vast. Mm-hmm. I you know I, I'll get this wrong, but it doesn't really matter because I get a lot of things wrong. But there's like there's only like 300 genes that are coding for uh, proteins in our uh, body, as example. But there's like 300,000. Um, you know, that are being expressed and nuanced, if you will. So it's like massive. The massive opportunity is like in, is in like, um, you know, adjusting and modifying and mm-hmm. expressing. So this is where they're like, it's all new territory. Yeah. Um, they're, they're just trying to get the tools to measure these things to your point as well about AI and, and, um, but, but if you think about it, it's like this is this great land of opportunity that if that we can, you know, you take the genetic potential and then fully express it yeah. for the benefit of, mm-hmm. in our instance, growing growing food, you know. And mm-hmm. yeah, what would the, that look like? Like, what is the mm-hmm. goal we'd be working towards here? Just like massively increased yields and efficiency and. Um, using yeah, like animal too. Yeah. Like one of yeah. the big areas is is at the moment a use of epigenetic is so they can see you know because now you can do these you know genome testing and uh, you know PCR testing. We've got big machines and all these many companies have them for in house testing and anyway they're available now. The cost of running a test you know get a drop of blood or whatever, you know, tissue, small tissue, saliva, and run it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very cents now versus, you know, thousands of dollars a few yeah. years ago. So now you, they've studied and they find, let's take an animal welfare example. Say if, say if we'll take cattle because we love cattle the most. Say if cattle were mistreated and uh, very stressed their whole life through bad environment and bad nutrition and, and, um, terrible housing and whatever and then and disease pressure and and so along they would be leaving fingerprints an epigenetic fingerprint in that animal and you so you take a blood sample and run that and you can if you know what you're looking for and you say these are the five marks that suggest bad animal welfare mm-hmm. one of them's nutrition one of them's physiological stress one of them's disease immune compromised and Mm -hmm. anyway let's say there's five that you've identified you run that blood sample then you can say whether this animal has been has had a good happy healthy life or not Mm -hmm. so you can do that retrospectively Mm -hmm. so now as a welfare measure you can imagine that you've developed the same assay for chickens and pigs and and, and cattle, um, just because we're talking about the major food animals, and now you could have a welfare audit mm-hmm. on those animals and see how you're doing. 
um, or as a manager. So that could be an audit to come from like food companies that want to certify that this animal was raised humanely, right? Low stress and health. It's interesting. Uh-huh. I'm already thinking of the how that would be like. Would definitely do that, right? Exactly. Stop accepting cattle from this place, or um, if, so, if yeah. they have three infractions it, on the last. Or even or a company like Whole Foods. I was going to say it. Yeah, it seems immediately like that would be a marketing thing to. You know, pick your parameters and use it yeah. to artificially shift the market to yeah. like, to align with whatever it is you want to. Yeah. You know, oh, what? Yeah, it's interesting. That's a very no, no, interesting it's a scenario. Tool. It's becoming very, very available. Wow. Um, and so that'll be used as a good example. But as of now, you change the thing to say as a manager or an owner of cattle. Um, and I have my the tools I have are my you know I, I can look at my cattle. And I'm a good judge of cattle and what makes them happy. And like that's a thousand different sensory things come into that. But if maybe you've got hired employees that haven't don't really know cattle real well and you need and and, and you want to have more you want to have more knowledge as example. Maybe these this information's useful to you too. Mm-hmm. Like, huh, maybe mm-hmm. my nutrition's not quite as good as I thought because you know, the because the epi marks on these indicate i might have a problem here and so you know this knowledge could be also used as a manager as a nutritionist to try and make changes and see the Mm -hmm. effect like real time Mm -hmm. real time yeah like you've done work on heat stress tommy when you're in uh when you're in nebraska Mm -hmm. imagine if you had this tool available you make a heat stress intervention and then you look for the yeah, the epigenetic well, mark shows up there to see yeah. if it's what was your way it. of evaluating just yeah, yeah. respiration rates and okay. panting scores. So and, really, things you can observe. But then just like yeah, exactly. How much are they eating? You know, what's the temperature? Sure. And trying to correlate that with intakes and performance. But yeah, the only thing that we could do from day to day to identify if they were stressed is there's panting scores wow. that you can do and res- measure it's, respiration rates and things like it's that. It's funny how quickly and say that and this got to yep. accept like there's a readily available which sounds like maybe there is but how quickly it makes some of those observable indicators seem yeah. like not nearly enough Right. if you were to able to get this another level of data to reference. Yeah. It's crazy wow. to think about what it would take to actually get dialed in yeah. on that too. Yeah, the whole emerging... I see the work on it. Like I sent an article to you, I think, about Evonik, you know. Is yeah. A, uh, they're basic in amino acid nutrition. You is know, that a company? Oh, well, yeah, I think a very good company. And, and they've invested in this area, you know, to, as a tool. So it's coming, like, commercialized. And, um, yeah, no, there'll be, there definitely will be more of it. And it, like, yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Um that was a cool example, though, there at the end. I don't, yeah, I was trying to kind of think in my head, what is the theoretical, um, yeah. like, what is the ideal? What are we striving for with it? And mm-hmm. how far can it go? And how about like in that the, actually does seem to. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry to jump around, but in the crop world or plant mm-hmm. world, is, is that, is this type of same theories in epigenetics and um, is that being applied there as well? Yeah, I think play more quickly. I think they're way ahead. Okay. It's easier to do there. Yeah. And um I think they're very aggressive in that. Come a long way since Lysenko, you know. Yeah. Do you heard of Lysenko? Tell us. Trofirm Lysenko, he was the Is he a good the, guy or a bad guy? Yeah, he's he's a villain, <laughs> as it turns out. But he was in the Soviet Union under Stalin and he was a believer in the theory of acquired inheritance, Lamarck. So we come all the way back to Lamarck, and um, Lamarck was the small French. Yeah, this little small French guy. Okay, not to be confused <laughs> with Napoleon. But, <laughs> so Lamarck, he is he rose to fame under Stalin because the communists, under a Marxist doctrine, wanted to believe that you could change the man, you know, the working man, and turn him into the perfect citizen. Mm. Um, through changing the environment. So it, you could see how this hand and glove, it fit perfect. Mm-hmm. The, the man striving of the animal to become something better would change his progeny, you know, the, the blacksmith yep. or the giraffe. So the Soviet man would be through his altruistic hard work and, uh, you know, co- love of his comrade, 
and um, we'd get rid of you know all of the baggage, and would we, his progeny would be pure, you know, Marxist utopian, and uh, so it fit very well. So they they put him in charge of the like all the uh, ag- agronomy science, and anyway, he he went on to like kill or be responsible for having like three thousand scientists killed in Russia. Um, because they believed in Mendelian, you know, genetics, and they weren't helpful to his cause <laughs> or his ideology. And um, and Stalin was only too willing to kill, have anyone killed, you know. <laughs> so so he played yes. into that. Yes. That could be considered a character flaw of, <laughs> of Uncle Joe. You know, he was just a little <laughs> bit too quick to. You know, to <laughs> Stalin says, I've got an idea. <laughs> yeah, what should we do with him? You're getting pushback, you say? Yeah, right. It's <laughs> oh. so like, I got an idea. Put him on that train up to the gulag in Siberia. See if he can walk out of there, you know, <laughs> 25 idea. years later. Yeah. You know, so no, they, so he was, so Lysenko, Trofirm is his name, Trofirm Lysenko. Um, I just read a great book called Lysenko's Ghost. It's about how it's coming back. You know, the epigenetics is coming back. God forbid from this from this horror of a person. But anyway, he um, so his policies were he, he you know he he induced the they called the Holdemore famine. Have you heard of that Holdemore? Mm-mm. It's where six six million Ukrainians and Russians were starved to death mm-hmm. just in the Ukraine. You know, in the in the most fertile. Area of yeah. agriculture in Europe, maybe there's 10 million, but anyway, he killed about 20 to 30 million Russians through starvation. He had them bear. He had them digging, planting seeds three foot in the ground. Why? He, because he said it would make the seeds more aggressive. <laughs> you know, because they would have to really strive to get out of the ground. They have to really want it. They have to really want it, and so Why? we'll grow better crops. And Let's then plant he, them in cement. Yeah, really. Is right. he also the one that would plant them? Next to each other, yeah. to create comp- competition between two seeds, so we wouldn't yeah. space them appropriately. Was that yeah, him? That's Good him. thing he killed all those scientists. Like nobody <laughs> could tell him that you're doing. Well, that was the that was part of the the, the attraction of of being Stalin's right hand man. You could, yeah. you know, you you got rid of everyone who would object, and um and he did. You know, he had conferences. He borrowed that from Mao. Mao had famously had the thousand flowers, right. you know, campaign. So was he after Mao? Yeah, he he came uh, he came during Mao. He in fact went to China, and Mao imported some of these theories. Yeah, which also helped kill about thirty million Chinese. How are they not seeing because how poorly this was working? Well, everyone would yeah. cover it up. No one could. You couldn't speak the. No one could speak the truth to the power. Sold or you'd just be like, killed. You know. There's still connotation of that, I think, in yeah. China. Like, so they but, falsified all the records. Everything was considered a record yield, so that they could send it up the chain to to, to Mao or Stalin and show that they were getting record yields. Well, and um, even when they weren't, I mean, people were eating grass. They were just dying. They were eating each other, you know. When the flesh of the sun was preferred to his love, that's I read that in a book. What was the the Mao book? This is maybe getting off ghost the topic. Of, ghost of um, was it Ghosts? Ghost? Yeah. Hungry Ghosts? There yeah, ghost. on my shelf right there. Yeah. Remember the one story when Mao would come and they'd parade him through the different villages to show that these practices, which are very seems like from from the same ideology as Stalin era stuff, but um, they would the yields were just shit. Obviously, yeah. they weren't getting anything to grow, but they would know he's coming. You know. Next week, Friday, Mao's going to be here. We have to make it, and we'll show him one field, and we have to make it look like it's working. Otherwise, we're all going to be killed or something like that. Uh-huh. So they dig up all of the growing plants that are somehow are actually growing in different you know fields all around and plant them all right there in the, just for the one day. field so it looks like it's just plentiful and huge, and then he can, Mao can nod at it and move on to the next village, and then they have to return them, spread them back out because they knew that was the only way they could grow. But... Yeah, Whoa. it seems like that's back to the point. Why didn't you know you're scared of you know yeah. displeasing the leader? Then you do anything to show that his ideas are good, and then everyone starves. Yeah. Well, so he, you know, and he had other theories like he could grow oranges in Siberia. You just move them further north. You know, every hundred miles every year, and pretty soon they're they want to be in 
Siberia where it's just frozen all year, but that's where you'll grow oranges, you know, like so in three like, years' time. He so said you could do it's it. It's the same concept as starting a Sherpa on a short mountain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seems like this guy, like, he he was a little ambitious with the, um, yeah. the effects. He was a little <laughs> loose with the science. <laughs> yeah. He, he like, really got the wanted, concept. He's like, I okay. really wanted epigenetics to yeah. work. He's like, come yeah. on. I really want it to work. <laughs> Like, gotta be a way to make money at this. I really it's want to. Good. Yeah, and he's like with milk cows. He's like if you if you milk them more gently because they're milking them by hand in the Soviet Union. Then he's like if the milkmaids we're back to milkmaids now, <laughs> which we're very fond of. Um, one of one of us. We like or every, just you? It's like every young lad's fantasy, right? <laughs> certainly every father in this podcast's fantasy. Somehow they've been brought up in like yeah. we can, seven out of eleven. Good thing is we can look back and see who brought them up. We'll, we'll get the transcripts. It's like the classic: the Swiss, you know, the braided blonde hair and the whatever. Go on. Anyway, um, <laughs> so back to the milking. Yeah, if you just milk them more gently, then they their progeny would would produce more milk as well. So you know, he had he had whole two instructions and you know everyone was instructed to milk them very gently so well anyway there was some immediate effect i suppose but this was his thinking was oh, this hmm. mao or no this is lysenko lysenko okay this guy sounds yeah mao hmm. wasn't milking cows <laughs> mao is lactose intolerant like you know most oh. asians so it yeah. didn't work out real well <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So yeah, that's um, a little sidetrack. But then Lysenko, you know, in the his uh, in the Soviet famines and the Mao, the communist, you know, the Great Leap Forward, where they, you know, collectively they killed, well, let's say fifty million, sixty million through starvation. Um, you can imagine how that gave sort of a black eye to this idea of, um, yeah. you know, um, ge- genetic manipulation through in the environment. <laughs> So it became so such a slanderous, dirty field of inquiry, and then so there's been a there's been real uneasiness uneasiness in the last ten years in the genetics community about letting this ghost back in hmm. through epigenetics. Well, that's interesting because you know it's like what the fuck up till <laughs> that coming back yeah. to be real, like not the whole thing real, but pieces of it. It's enough to make them. It's enough to make them sweat. Mm. It's interesting because we've been up until this piece of the conversation talking about all the potential and the, you know, the mm-hmm. the very exciting areas that epigenetics. But here, also talking about how it went. So, you know, the theory was taken maybe very yeah. very literally and to the extreme, and how it yeah didn't exactly go well. No, that's right. It was just horrendous. So. But it's like everything we've talked about, you know. You, and this is the this is the lesson of life, I suppose. It's like fantastic, but the, you know, the hubris of the science community. It's too easy to think that you got everything nailed down, you know. And it always comes back to bite you. <laughs> it's like what we just thought we had it nailed, and then there's like a whole universe opens up, yes. like we talked about with parasites and with yeah, immunology right. and. And um, it's like nothing's ever actually settled, right? It's like but there's this is, so much more to know. This area you know? does seem just completely like so fascinating if you were yeah. in it studying it. Like it is kind of like the the new the frontier, next, the next wave of yeah of inquiry. Yeah, well, and it's very interesting for humans too with cancer remedies and and even like other things. We have this coca, you know, cocaine and fentanyl epidemic mm. you know in america there's, there's actually i read there's interesting work being done there to see because it affects the progeny of all these not just the women that are doing drugs while they're pregnant but the sperm from mm. drug addict fathers you know affecting the children and grandchildren it's like mm. damn well, kids just bouncing off the walls mm-hmm. from the- yeah. cocaine that's yeah but you can see that coming from the, the mother. mother yeah yeah but, but this father. is from a father that's you know, yeah. addict coke, cocaine <laughs> is one that's been studied. They have the mouse models that because um, it's hard to do it with people. <laughs> Random controlled trials with people where you know you guys are getting fentanyl and you're getting coke <laughs> and you guys get nothing. 
You know, you get like a peanut sandwich, peanut butter sandwich. It's like, <laughs> put me in another group. <laughs> but anyway, the mass models, you know, they're, they're able to show this effect coming through from the father through to the, you know, progeny. It's the damnedest thing. <laughs> so it's a lot more to learn. There's Does so he, much more to learn. I imagine that, is there a lot of sharing and cross um, collaboration between like animal industry and uh, human health like in these two areas it seems like there's so much overlap or are they kind of uh, you know treat it like closed doors and this is our then we're not going to share our knowledge or is it pretty open I don't know I think it's pretty it's probably a little about that honestly but egg is like know. the there's huge real world data sets you yeah. know things being put into practice well before you could ever do it with yep. people so it seems right. like the obvious place to look yeah I know even just from Carrie again's her line of work, like the bovine and mouse are both actually pretty good models for sure. human. So yeah. it can almost be doing two birds with yeah, one stone, you know, like, like doing, doing it for it the for, egg industry. But but you can also some learn stuff from this. might actually apply to the human side. Interesting. Yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah. So I've exhausted my might, knowledge. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that might be the. Exhausted my knowledge. Like what I can talk about. Thirty seconds it. into yeah. this conversation, I had. Well, it's you, great though. It's yeah, fun it's to chat a lot it more through. than a lot more than um, you know, than I thought. Um, and there's more ground to cover, but I, I think someday if we want to pick it up again, we yeah. can carry back in here. Yeah, well, I think we be, have a lot of great. questions that came up. So I think we this. opened a lot of doors, and yeah. now it'd be nice to get some of the answers next time around. We do have, mm. yeah, we can speculate, but it'd be nice to have. Yeah, I think that would be worth revisiting again down the road. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Two, three. Thank you. Thank you, brothers. (laughs) 